What if the trees could keep feeling the cool breeze? What if the fish in the sea never had to taste plastic again? What if we could keep waking up and seeing the sun unclouded by smoke? What if the Amazon could keep thriving? What if we could keep the sea from rising? Stop Stop Ecoside Canada! Welcome to another edition of the Stop Ecoside Canada podcast series, where we learn more about protecting the future of life on Earth. Mass damage and destruction of nature is called ecocide. In most of the world, it's legally permitted. This can't go on. It's time to change the rules. It's time to make ecocide an international crime. Stop ecocide, change the law, protect the Earth. Today we'll meet with two amazing human rights lawyers who have taken an active interest in criminalizing ecocide. Kate McIntosh is Deputy Chair of the Independent Expert Panel for the Legal Definition of Ecocide, convened by the Stop Ecocide Foundation. She's also the Inaugural Executive Director of the Promise Institute for Human Rights Law at the UCLA School of Law. Lisa Oldring is the Law and Policy Advisor to Stop Ecocide Canada. She has served in various roles with the UN, including as a senior advisor with the Office of the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights. I'm today's guest host, Saira Perhar, a soon-to-be law student and an aspiring environmental lawyer. Thank you both for joining us today. So to dive into the questions, I want to start with your histories. To give our listeners a feel for the type of experience you each have, you met each other in Rwanda in 1995. Can you tell us what you were doing there? So we met as part of a human rights field operation in the aftermath of the genocide in Rwanda. We had responsibilities that ranged from monitoring um, and investigating ongoing human rights violations, uh, working with local prisons, monitoring the situation of people that were returning to to Rwanda after the genocide uh, and so on. Many, many years later, you have now both got involved in Stop Ecocide. Um, Lisa, I'd like to start with you on what motivated you to step into the role of legal advisor for Stop Ecocide Canada? Well, I think there are a number of, of reasons. I mean, like so many people, I've been deeply troubled by the increasing severity of the climate crisis. Um, as well as the seeming lack of accountability for ongoing environmental destruction. So, and I felt a a responsibility for my role in our sort of collective stewardship of of the earth. And yet I've struggled in the last few years to find ways to engage at a more substantive level. I'm not an environmental lawyer and so was at a bit of a loss as to how I might contribute. Um, There were a couple of pivotal moments, I would say, that led me to Stop Ecoside. Um, A few years ago, I had quite a serious health issue and was very ill. I was very fortunate to recover. And when I did, I sort of took stock and decided that I really, really wanted to use my background to contribute in some way to accountability for environmental 
destruction. I reached out and had conversations with people that had for many years already been working at the intersection of human rights and environmental issues, including trailblazers like Kate. Um, and I learned about the Stop, e Stop Ecoside campaign. And last year, I then moved back to Canada after about 25 years away. And I discovered that Stop Ecoside had a Canadian team that was co-founded by Donna Grace Campbell and Jamie Hunter. Um, with this really fantastic group of people and together we're working to raise awareness and support um, within Canada. All right. So Kate, you were the deputy co-chair of the expert legal drafting panel for the definition of ecocide. How did you get involved with the panel? Um, I got involved with the panel. I had been um, sort of working around or thinking about what international criminal law how international criminal law could support protection of the environment, including through a new potential new international crime for a while. Um, starting from when I was in The Hague, uh, my last position, so kind of involved in running the Yugoslavia War Crimes Tribunal there. And I actually had, so I met Polly Higgins. Um, I also spoke with Stop Ecoside in the Netherlands and I'd been kind of vaguely in touch and to me it was, seemed really clear that the most useful thing I could do would be to work on the definition. But when I came here to the Promise Institute at UCLA, I saw a real opportunity to focus on human rights and the environment. I mean, for other reasons, I mean, just because it's so important and it seemed like we had the kind of resources and the intellectual resources uh, and other resources to, to take that on. And so I, we had a symposium on human rights and the climate crisis, a big annual conference. And the day after that, I convened a working group on international criminal law and the protection of the environment. And it was fantastic. And then I reconnected with Stop Ecoside with Jojo Meta in particular. And she talked about her project to convene the panel. And I told her about the working group and the work we were doing. And we just basically decided to join forces. And the way that that took shape was in me joining the panel and being the, the deputy co-chair. Uh, so I brought, I should say, to the panel as well, not just my own ideas, but also the work of the, the, the working group that we had here at Promise, including some other amazing Canadians like Daryl Robinson, for example, who I'm sure you're in touch with, and, and other people. So, so that's how I got in, involved. Can I get you to read out the proposed definition of um, the legal definition of ecocide? Sure. Yeah. So as you know, the, we focused on the definition of a crime that could be included in the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court. So for that, we would suggest adding another article, which would be Article 8 Ter. So it would be the fifth crime in the statute. So Article 8 Ter, ecocide. One. For the purpose of this statute, ecocide means unlawful or wanton acts committed with knowledge that there is a substantial likelihood of severe and either widespread or long-term damage to the environment being caused by those acts. And I think I probably won't read out paragraph two unless you want me to, but in paragraph two, we then define the terms wanton, severe, widespread, long-term and environment. All right. And Lisa, when you first saw the completed definition the panel created, you described it as a work of art. Can you share with us what you meant? Um, well, I think to answer that, I would need to just back up to when this expert panel was convened, um, as, as Kate was sort of referring to. 
I mean, really looking at the incredible diversity of skills and experience brought together on this panel. I mean, these are 12 leading experts in international criminal law, environmental and climate law. It was pretty clear that the definition would be the result of a very serious body of research and deliberation. Um, and I think it's also important to point to the incredibly important process that was set up over the course of the six months that the panel did its work. Obviously, Kate will speak to, to this better than I possibly could, but you know, the panel was assisted by outside experts. It had input from a public consultation that brought in ideas from a whole range of um, perspectives, including indigenous and political, faith-based and other perspectives. Um, I recall telling Kate back in January when I sort of realized what was happening and what she was a part of that I hadn't felt this fired up about the relevance and potential of international law for a very, very long time. And so just looking at the definition, I think the panel has done a remarkable service in coming up with a definition that's both grounded in existing law and innovative. It's a definition that builds on the existing war crime of severe damage to the environment during armed conflict, um, but it also draws from elements of the crimes of both genocide and crimes against humanity. And it's structured both in its substance and its form so that it would fit neatly into the Rome Statute. I mean, it, it looks like it belongs there. But I think it's also groundbreaking in that it extends effective legal protections for serious environmental harm as a matter of international concern. And I think to me, that's why it's a work of art. All right. And now to transition a little bit. Um, and so the legal definition of ecocide, we're trying to get it ratified into the Rome Statute. Um, and it would be under the jurisdiction of the ICC, the International Criminal Court. Um, but the International Criminal Court has a moderate success rate at prosecuting existing international crimes. Is using the ICC the best way to prosecute the most egregious environmentally criminal acts? Kate, maybe you could answer this one. What impact would adding a crime of ecocide under the ICC really have? Yeah, that's a very important question, of course. I mean, I think it's funny. I've, so I've been asked that question before, but actually, as you were asking, I had a new thought, which was there are obviously other ways this could be approached, like a whole new convention around ecocide, which could include lots of other provisions like the torture convention or the genocide convention about preventative actions and so on, all of which I think is very positive and, and I would not be against that being considered as well. But it struck me that if we're really trying to say this is a crime of the same gravity and magnitude as genocide or crimes against humanity, if it's not in the Rome Statute, I think we failed. It almost it has to be there to convey that very powerful message, which I think is one of it is one element of the impact actually. So I think a very important element of including ecocide in the Rome Statute or introducing a new international crime of ecocide on that level is the norm setting and the message it sends. And we had talked a little before we started about you know, how this can help people fighting on the ground. And I think 
to be able to say like this is ecocide as an advocacy point, you know, as a point of protest and resistance to say this is ecocide and to have a definition so you can actually make a solid argument this is ecocide. And we have decided as a global community that ecocide is an international crime. So something that affects all of us and is so serious that we're not going to leave it to individual states to deal with and prosecute. We're going to take it out and raise it to an international level. I think that in itself is, is hugely powerful. And on, on a more practical, or not more practical, but on a more... Um, in terms of what it might actually do in the courts, etc. Depends how this goes through the whole ratification process, right? But of course, one of the things that the Rome Statute has or an advantage it offers is the system of complementarity. So the idea that um, states that, uh, that approve the inclusion of the crime ecocide in the Rome Statute will themselves implement that in their domestic laws. And that means that it's not just what crimes are going to make it to the Hague. We know that's very few. It's always going to be very few. There's limited capacity there to try these crimes. But these crimes will be tried at national level as well, you know, which is often way more effective. I mean, obviously, far more resources, easier access to evidence, to witnesses, and so on. Um, and it will also introduce this element of you know, a, a, a universal jurisdiction. The jurisdictional advantages of having ecocide in the Rome statute are many. Uh, there are all sorts of issues like where was the crime committed and where are the effects of the crime. There are lots of potential locations where a crime could be tried and in many of those states may well be parties to the ICC statute and may have accepted ecocide. So the ICC is a complex jurisdictional animal but it offers many, many opportunities to prosecute crimes which uh, yeah, are currently not being prosecuted at a national level beyond prosecuting them in the Hague. You know, this is definitely long overdue. If we had a, a international crime of ecocide, you know, in years past, then there's, it probably would have prevented a lot of atrocities from occurring. So, yeah. you know, that is so important because the U.S. isn't part of the ICC jurisdiction. You know, maybe people in the U.S. can push for it, um, like a law of ecocide, to be adopted at the federal level. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. You you remind me of another point, Sarah, which is um, which I think is an important one and is something that I I think could be quite powerful. And that is, if you think about who's committing ecocide, I mean, there are many different forms, of course, but obviously. Um, big corporations are going to be somewhat in the frame. And we've been talking about our ambitions for how a crime like this might change corporate behaviour in a way that is probably um, more impactful than this kind of crime acting as a deterrent in cases of genocide or crimes against humanity. Just because those kind of crimes are often committed by very ideologically driven groups, uh, you know, who they've already gone to war and you know, I just, I'm not sure how to, what sort of deterrence um, the crime of genocide. I don't know that the fact that they may be prosecuted for genocide is going to weigh that heavily. I mean, of course, it's absolutely crucial that there be accountability for these kind of crimes. But in terms of changing behaviour, it sets the norm, but I'm not sure what the impact is on, you know, very extremist ideologically driven groups who may be committing these crimes. And if we contrast that with, um, you know, corporate actors, who are you know, in some ways more rational in that they are weighing risks and 
those risks are usually um, quantified in, you know, financially, right? So it's about shareholder value. Um, I think the fact that an act, there are two things. First of all, there would be individuals making decisions at the highest levels who could personally, of course, be brought before criminal courts, which I would assume would have some deterrent factor. But then there's the whole kind of PR side of it. And a company, I think, I think that in-house lawyers at, you know, Texaco, Chevron, Shell, wherever, if this statute, if this crime is on the statute, are going to be saying, well, this might not be such a great idea because, you know, it looks like it could fit into the definition of the crime of ecocide. And whether or not you're going to get prosecuted, it's really not a good look. So I think we have um, opportunity to use this crime. It sets the norms as I said, it, it opens up multiple jurisdictional possibilities for prosecution, but I think it also maybe has a chance to shift behavior more than the other international crimes. So now I would like to read a quote from one of the UK's most admired politicians and barristers, the Right Honorable David Lammy. He's the Labour MP and Shadow Justice Minister. Um, and here is what he says on criminalizing ecocide. Are we prepared to use the most powerful levers against the most powerful interests. That's the big test. If I'm right that colonialism and an extractive economy is the natural, you know, the nat climate change is the natural conclusion of those things, then is the world prepared to say that this is a line in the sand, that, that, that there is some offences that are so severe so egregious that there has to be a law against it. And we have to be able to hold up top business leaders, top world leaders, uh, because they're committing global acts that are so heinous. Uh, and it seems to me this is a real global challenge to the world. And if you're interested in, in climate justice, then in a way, this is the exciting radical place to be of this discussion because it will mean standing up to very powerful interests and that's where the criminal law can be at its most its most um, robust that's very powerful um lisa i'd like to ask you are we ready to draw the line in the sand gosh sarah i mean david lammy is so eloquent in the way that he articulates sort of the moment that we're living and, you know, of course, he asks the, the billion dollar question, <laughs> are we ready to draw that line in the stand? Um, I'd say I'm both a worrier and an optimist. So I guess my answer to that would be, I sure hope so. Um, it's difficult to make radical change and the radical change that we need when there are deeply entrenched, powerful interests at play. At the same time, I think the climate crisis has reached a point where truly each and every one of us um, has an interest in making the changes that have to happen in order for the Earth and its inhabitants to survive. I mean, and this is even more clear with the latest IPCC report. But I would say there are encouraging developments. And here I look to the youth activism, which is just absolutely incredibly powerful. I mean, even a few years ago, I, I was very lucky. I took my kids out of school and we went to a Fridays for Future strike in Lausanne. This was pre-COVID, of course. And we had the opportunity to listen to Greta Thunberg um, alongside 
I think we were about 10,000 people. And so if you're ever going to be inspired to take action and hopeful for the future, it's, it's those moments that I think give you, give you that hope. Um, people are taking action in record numbers to stand up and say no to projects that would cause further massive damage. Um, courts around the world are increasingly playing a decisive role in addressing the climate crisis in ways that I think would be pretty unimaginable even a few years ago. Um, just to give some of the statistics, because I think they're quite telling, there was a UN report, and it was the first time the UN ever issued this sort of report back in 2017, that took stock of the climate litigation around the world. And it, that report assessed 800 and something climate change cases in 24 countries around the world. And by just two or three years later, when it issued the follow-up report, there were double the number of cases, uh, just about in nearly double the number of countries. And so in many cases, courts are compelling governments and corporate actors as well towards greater accountability. Um, but I think the trends highlighted in these reports um, also point to something deeper, and that is really the urgent need for an enforceable international criminal law against ecocide. So are we ready to draw the line in the sand? I think it's really now um, for states parties to pick up and that this panel has done such remarkable work and done such a great service in coming up with a definition. It's really now for states to, uh, to pick up and, and draw that line in the sand in response to the urgent demands of populations around the world. You know, you first started off talking about the youth and um, if any, if our listeners haven't listened to the first two episode, episodes of this podcast, they, the youth that are interviewed are just amazing um, and so inspiring to listen to. Kate, I have a question for you now um, about the definition of ecocide. So the panel, when describing severe damage, very specifically included damage to cultural resources. Now, this is the paradigm shift for a law of this caliber. Can you explain why um, this was important to the panel? Yes, I'm really happy about that word, cultural. <laughs> so, we, you know, there were a number of puzzles that we um, had to deal with in coming up with this definition. And one of them was, how do we somehow capture the, um, the significance of elements of the environment to, you know, indigenous groups or cultures that live in the kind of sustainable relationship with the land that we actually are aspiring to. And how do we represent that, either that worldview or that wisdom uh, in this definition? We ended up with just this one word, cultural, in our definition of severe. But the impact of that is that where there is a grave impact on something that is a cultural resource, that would, that's like an aggravating factor that will lift the qualification of the damage to being seen as severe. So it's an element of understanding whether or not the damage is severe enough to count as ecocide will be its cultural value. And so there we're obviously thinking of, you know, destruction of sacred sites or even destruction of areas which would mean the end of a cultural way, you know, a way of life, for example. I mean, I think in that word cultural, 
as a way of evaluating severe, all sorts of things can be encompassed and, you know, it will be for judges interpreting the law to see how that's used and for prosecutors bringing cases to see how they use that and how they frame it. But I think with that word, the intention in any case, and I think the effect of including that word is to allow for those kind of values to be brought into this crime. When we think about, you know, like colonial exploitation, you know, especially occurring right now mm-hmm. in the Amazon, um, you know, there are tons of indigenous tribes there who are fighting for their forests um, and, you know, it's being deforested and they're losing not only their livelihoods, but their culture. And, you know, I, I think that's such a powerful thing, but, you know, it's everywhere. It's here in BC where I am um, in Ferry Creek right now. Um, you know, it's in the tar sands where where um, people are getting, you know, they're drinking water contaminated and, you know, the water is a sacred part of their land. So, Lisa, you know, being a human rights lawyer, can you describe the intersectionality of human rights and criminalizing ecocide? Um, I think it's a great question. So, I mean, we know that, that ecocide is about mass damage and destruction of ecosystems that contribute to the climate crisis, the collapse of biodiversity and the threats to the life support systems of the earth. Um, And we know that these crises pose risks to to all of us. Um, But we also know that it is, of course, the most marginalized and disempowered populations that face the harshest impacts. If we think about children, for example, nearly every child around the world is at risk from at least one major climate impact, so heat waves and floods, disease, air pollution, but there are one billion children living in places where they face three or four impacts simultaneously. And this is from a a UNICEF report that has just come out that highlights how the climate crisis is really a child rights crisis. You know, and I think you could come at at this from any number of human rights, but uh, it's quite powerful, I think, just looking at what UNICEF has done. They've mapped out climate and environmental impacts and sort of superimpose these with maps of child vulnerability, such as poverty and access to clean drinking water and healthcare and education, to show the likelihood of a child's ability to survive the climate change impact. And it's really a sobering read. Um, so I think, you know, the hope is that criminalizing ecocide would signal a moral and legal red line in terms of the serious damage to the environment. But I think it would ultimately be a tool for human rights accountability. So to me, these, these are deeply intertwined concepts. And really, you can't, I think, uh, talk about one in, in isolation from the other. They're so deeply connected. Lisa, I've got actually another question for you. Um, do you foresee the criminalization of ecocide? Um, to have the potential to eliminate, you know, massive environmental sacrifice zones, such as, you know, the tar sands here in Canada? The quick kind of practical reality of um, assuming that the crime of ecocide will be enshrined in in the Rome Statute. I mean, there is this concept of non-retroactivity. So whatever happens, the point at which states decide to endorse and ratify a, a crime of ecocide, um, it would be, you know, something that wouldn't have retroactive uh, effect. 
That's not to say that it wouldn't have an impact on ongoing uh, violations. And there's a lot of um, reference to specific contexts like the tar sands, um, old growth forest, um, the Amazon, and so on. So, I mean, I think I think the potential is there. I I, I feel in like so many i'm sure do that the writing is on the wall when it comes to some of the extractive practices that have been ongoing for so many years that just simply cannot continue um and there are economic reasons as well as criminal law reasons for that so i don't know whether you know in isolation a crime you know having a crime of ecocide would suddenly um kind of right the wrongs including tar sands extraction and so on. But uh, it's, it's clearly a critical piece of the puzzle. If I could yeah. just jump in just to say, I think Lisa's exactly right the way she's phrased it. Like none of us think that the inclusion of ecocide in the Rome Statute is going to solve the climate crisis, right? But it does feel like it might be the kind of strategic intervention that could shift us substantially towards the direction which we are definitely going in. I mean, like Lisa said, the writing's on the wall. I mean, it, it's, we can't ignore this. But unfortunately, the reason this is going to become an international crime, the reason that we are going to change our ways is that we're going to be absolutely forced to. But I do think that this is, as David Lamy said, this is a lever. You know, I think this little, this is my belief, I think this little crime could really shift things in a powerful way. Uh, in, as I said, a direction which we have to go in. We just know we have to go in. But this might help us get there quicker. For sure. Thank you so much. It's time to wrap up soon, but I just wanted to ask before we went off, um, as an aspiring law student and lawyer, what would you say to me about the power of this definition, the power of criminalizing ecocide? I mean, I, I can jump in there. And I think, Saira, that it's it's a good way to sort of close off that coming to a, a very personal place. And I, I really have to say I'm full of admiration and hope when I uh, talk to people like you and I hear about your kind of career ambitions and objectives um, and the work that you're doing to um, make changes that we, we need to see. Um, I think, I'm sure that I, I'm sure the three of us um, believe in the power of the law as a tool for change. Otherwise, we wouldn't have dedicated <laughs> so much of our time and in, in, in lives to, to this. But I, I truly believe um, in the power of the law as a tool for change. And I have every faith that people like you are going to be the ones that make uh, the, the systemic change happen that we need to see happen. I think criminalizing ecocide is clearly an important part of this change. And hopefully it's going to create that space. You often hear Jojo Meta talking about the potential for the, a crime of ecocide to kind of create the space that needs to open up for more of the innovative solutions um, to come through. And again, not a silver bullet, but certainly um, I, I believe very strongly in the potential to shift the dynamic towards more responsible and accountable decision making thank you that means a lot and what both of you have done is just so incredible and you continue to do incredible things so thank you 
All right. Well, thank you, Kate. Thank you, Lisa, for taking your time to speak with us today and for your powerful contributions to criminalizing ecocide. I'd also like to say thank you to Finn, age 12, and Ella, age 10, who expressed their hopes for a sustainable future at the beginning of this podcast. You've been listening to an episode of Stop Ecocide, Change the Law, Change the World. This series is executive produced by Donna Grace Campbell for Stop Ecocide Canada with music courtesy of Kaylee Watts. For more information, find us online at stopecocide.ca. Thanks so much for listening.